Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. Welcome again to our service. If you are just joining with us, we come to this text near the end of Hebrews with still a few chapters to go. I would ask that you'd have your Bibles available and open there to the passage as we go through it. At the beginning of the sermon last week, I said something I want to repeat at the beginning of the sermon this week, that it takes both warning and encouragement to sustain perseverance in the Christian life. We need both warning and encouragement. And the original hearers of Hebrews needed both of those things too. We can't say with certainty what were the exact circumstances or challenges facing the members of this small house church in the first century to whom the pastor wrote this sermon. But we know enough to know they needed the pastor's warning and encouragement. They were in some danger of drifting away, as chapter 2 verse 1 put it. At various points, the pastor has suggested that their confidence was wavering. And we've seen how he told them what they needed to do as a body of believers to deal with their sluggishness, right? In chapter 3, verse 13, the pastor says they are to exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In chapter 4, verse 11, he urges them, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by disobedience, like those of the wilderness generation. In chapter 4, verse 14, the pastor explains what the whole central section of his sermon would be about and what it would be for. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That's what it's about. The exhortation that follows, let us hold fast our confession. Well, that's what it's for. It would seem the recipients of Hebrews had regressed of late. You have become dull of hearing, the pastor bluntly stated it in chapter 5, verse 11. Some of them had even ceased identifying publicly with the body of Christ, was it for fear of impending persecution? Perhaps. Or maybe it was just a matter of laxity, of the neglect of divine things. Maybe it was a combination of both. We're never quite told. But one thing is clear. They need to wake up. They must go on to maturity, as chapter 6, verse 1 says. They must show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, chapter 6, verse 11 says. Not to do so would be to risk falling into apostasy. Such was the nature of the warning that we considered last week in verses 26 to 31 of chapter 10. Concerning that text, one preacher writes, there is no more aggressive, hard-hitting passage in God's word. Perhaps you felt that last week. I hope you did. 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the pastor concluded in verse 31. But as we said last week, none of them and none of us need expect that that will be the end we face. In fact, the point is that it won't be. Not if we follow the exhortations the pastor gave us in verses 19 to 25, remember? Draw near in faith. Hold fast to hope. Encourage one another in the life of love. The whole point was that ours is not a fearful expectation of judgment if we do those things, if we continue in the Christian life. The fury of fire that will consume the adversaries from our text last week, that's not what is ahead for us because we're not God's adversaries. And we never will become God's adversaries so long as we do as the pastor has exhorted us to do. The pastor's dire warning concerning the end, concerned the end that awaits those who reject the one and only means by which we can be saved, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, if you found yourself feeling anxious this week, that maybe those verses from last week's text were describing you, then I have good news for you. They're not. If they were, you wouldn't be anxious. You'd simply be walking away. Verses 26 to 31 from last week were a warning for the faithful, dear friends. The pastor does not expect what he describes there to be the end for his hearers because the pastor doesn't expect his hearers will now go on to reject Jesus. Instead, he fully expects that they will turn once again to Jesus. As he's been doing from the very start of Hebrews, the pastor would focus their gaze and ours upward to the all-sufficient Christ at God's right hand, why? Why does the pastor want us to look there? Because that's where we go to find the help we need to live the life of faith. It's not as if this is all just up to us or something. It isn't. Do you remember back in chapter 4, verse 15? The pastor writes there, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Thank God for that. I've got lots of them. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, knowing our weaknesses, right? Let us then with confidence, which therefore cannot mean confidence in who we are, apart from Jesus, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Dear friends, the ability to live faithfully is itself linked to the mercy and grace 
found only in the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. The only reason you would not receive that mercy and grace is if you reject him. You fail to draw near to him. This is why the pastor is willing to bring us to the edge of the abyss. He wants to turn our gaze to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where we're going soon in Hebrews. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Think about that. The whole exhortation-focused section of Hebrews began with the pastor saying in chapter 10, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, having those things, let us draw near, and let us hold fast, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And so this morning, the pastor now turns to offer his encouragement in verses 32 to 39. And there's some warning in what the text that Renata read for us earlier, I realize that. But the dominant tone of our passage today is one of encouragement. And we'll be looking at it in two parts. First, in verses 32 to 34, the pastor encourages his hearers by telling them to remember the past. Recall the former days, he writes. Then secondly, in verses 35 to 39, the pastor encourages his hearers by telling them how they can respond in the present. Therefore, verse 35 begins, do not throw away your confidence. Remember the past that you might now respond with enduring faith in the present. That's where the pastor goes in our passage. And as we'll see, how they lived in the past and how they can live in the present was and is to be anchored in the future that God has promised them. So let's begin in verses 32 to 34, as the pastor first here encourages them and us to remember the past but recall the former days, verse 32 says, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, if you've been with us for a while in our series, you may remember that the pastor said something shorter than this, but similar to it, back in chapter 6. Immediately following a similar warning, the pastor writes in chapter 6, verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. 
It would seem now that some of what the pastor was referencing back in chapter 6 is now spelled out a little in chapter 10. As he follows this warning in chapter 10 against apostasy, once again, with a reminder of his hearers' faithfulness during the former days, the days after you were enlightened. Again there, we have a link back to chapter 6 because this word for being enlightened also appeared there in chapter 6, verse 4. One commentator says, it's a word that describes the saving illumination of the heart and mind mediated through the preaching of the gospel. In other words, the pastor refers here to their conversion, that he might draw their attention to a time that came soon after that. He's not just trying to remind them of something like the good old days when their faith seemed easy or something. Rather, he's bringing them back to a time of trial and difficulty and danger in their lives when nonetheless they exhibited great faithfulness. Perhaps you know from experience that it's not generally the times when things are just going well that most define our faith. It's the times of suffering. And in the end of verse 32, the pastor reminds them of a hard struggle with sufferings that they endured. Literally, the language here reads, you endured a great contest of sufferings. It is an athletic metaphor that the pastor employs. Literally, the word itself in Greek is athlesis. You can hear the word athletic in it. It was common in the first century for philosophers and other writers to liken the virtuous life to an athletic contest that required discipline. But what's striking here is that the content of the contest that the pastor describes is sufferings. It was, he says, a contest of sufferings that his hearers endured. And they were shameful sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed, he says in verse 33. That has the sense of being made a spectacle. The verb that's used here is related to the Greek term for the theater. The word that Paul also uses in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9 when he says he and his co-workers have become a spectacle to the world. The emphasis here is on the public nature of the sufferings that the pastor's hearers endured in the past. They were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Reproach would refer to insults or mockery, scorn, reviling, probably false accusations. It was verbal abuse that was endured by the recipients of Hebrews. Afflictions would refer to physical abuse of some kind, beatings or violence of some kind committed against them. And the point is that such verbal and physical abuse was in some way connected to their faith. Now, Hebrew scholars debate quite at length as to whether this can be linked to some known period of Christian persecution in the first century. 
Some prominent scholars suggest that it was the edict of the emperor Claudius that expelled the Jews, including Jewish followers of Jesus, expelled the Jews from Rome in AD 49 that could form the backdrop of the suffering the pastor is describing here. That may be the case. I don't think we can know for sure. The pastor is describing a particular time of persecution in their past, no doubt. They would have known exactly to what he's referring. But for us, it seems enough to see that these first century believers had come under intense shame and public ostracism for their faith, and they had faithfully competed in that contest, you see. Their shame was, at least in the eyes of God, transformed into the honor of the victor. Only not only did they themselves endure such sufferings, the end of verse 33 indicates that sometimes they were partners with those so treated. They showed support and solidarity with the suffering of their brothers and sisters. The NIV translates this as they stood side by side with them. Such identification would have cost them something. Verse 34 explains this. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Probably we should read those two parts of verse 34 as being connected. Those who had such compassion on their imprisoned brothers and sisters, for that reason, suffered the loss of their property. The verb translated Having compassion means to sympathize. It is the same verb that was used to speak of Jesus himself in chapter 4, verse 15. Jesus, the high priest who is able to sympathize with us. Just as Jesus Christ literally shared in our experience, so also did these believers share in the sufferings of those in prison, not meaning that they just had feelings of sympathy, but that they provided concrete assistance. In those days, in Rome at least, those imprisoned for their faith and awaiting punishment would have had no one to provide for them the necessities of life except other followers of Christ. As one scholar explains, quote, in general, Roman prisons were overcrowded, noxious, dangerous, and dark. Prisoners were often uncared for, unless by friends and family. The process of arrest and incarceration was intentionally shaming with a stigma that could follow a person for life and that could infect those associated with them. In many cases, openly associating with those imprisoned was to place oneself in bodily danger. And you see, the point is, they did that. Can you imagine here the deep encouragement that such a reminder would have conveyed to them? Evidently, some combination of lethargy and fear of disfavor from the surrounding world had at this point weakened the hearers of Hebrews to the point where some of them were no longer willing to identify with the people of God. It had not always been so, the pastor is eager to remind them. In the former days, they did not shy away from suffering. 
by silently disassociating themselves from those who were persecuted. No, they became their partners, even to the point of enduring the sufferings of those with whom they partnered. And what that meant, at least a large part of what that meant, was that they accepted the plundering of their property, as verse 34 says. Only the English there maybe doesn't convey the sense of this exactly, the word for property here is in the plural in the Greek. We should perhaps translate it as the seizure of your possessions. What they owned was confiscated, seized. One commentator writes, such loss of property meant exclusion from society and from the means of providing a livelihood. It left its victims isolated and without resources. And the pastor reminds them of how they accepted that with joy, brothers and sisters, which I find deeply challenging myself. These were people who rejoiced when they lost everything for the sake of sympathizing with their suffering brothers and sisters. It kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great. The pastor will say something like that in verse 35, but here at the end of verse 34, he puts it differently. Here the reason they were able to demonstrate such faithfulness in the past is because they knew something. You knew, the pastor writes, that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And just make this connection because it's, it's not so clear in the ESV. They knew they had a better possession, singular, end of verse 34. That's why they joyfully welcomed the seizure of their possessions, plural, earlier in the verse. Do you see that? The two Greek words used there share the same root. The point is explicit. What do these lesser and temporary possessions of this world matter when we know we have something so much greater and enduring? And it wasn't just that they knew that such a possession existed. It's that they themselves knew they had it. They were confident that the better and abiding possession was, in fact, theirs. Now, I'm assuming this is clear, but we're talking here about the ultimate destiny of God's people, right? The possession these believers knew they had is nothing less than full salvation, life in the presence of the eternal God. It's better because it's life with God in the better country, as chapter 11, verse 16 will say. And it's life for those who enjoy the better resurrection, as chapter 11, verse 35 will say. And it's all because it's based on Christ's better sacrifice, as we saw in chapter 9, verse 23, it is better and it is abiding because it is eternal. It remains. Here we have no lasting city, the pastor will write in chapter 13, verse 14. 
but we seek the city that is to come, the one that remains. This whole thing reminds me of Romans chapter 8, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what the recipients of Hebrews once were bold to claim, and in these verses, the pastor would remind them of that fact. There was a time when they knew their future, and it drove how they lived. You could see it, in fact. Theirs was a life of love and good works. Now, the point is not that you and I should be able to identify the exact same acts of faith in our own past. Obviously, this was an intense crucible of time that the pastor uh, refers to here. But nonetheless, the point is, I think, especially if we've been Christians for some time, that we should be able to look back and draw encouragement from times when we can see that the grace of God was at work in our lives. Have there been times when we have faithfully endured a hard struggle with sufferings of some kind? Have there been times when we have, to some degree, been mistreated for the sake of Christ or actively partnered with others who were? Most of us probably have not experienced the seizure of our possessions, but can we see evidence in our past attitudes and life decisions that have been shaped not by the desire for earthly possessions, but by the joyful freedom that comes from knowing that our eternal possession is very great? The pastor would have us look back and remember such times in our lives. Because such things remind us of our own past faithful character and the power of God to sustain and deliver us as we continue to draw near to him. It may be that to help with this, you could seek a faith, the faithful counsel of a trusted friend or family member. Sometimes others can see things in our own lives more clearly than we can ourselves. But encouragingly, the pastor uses his hearer's past as an example of the sort of faith that's needed now to the end. Where such things can be found in our past, we would do well to remember them too. But then, having done that, we, like the recipients of Hebrews, must then turn to the present. Faith is always a matter of response in the present. And so in verses 35 to 39, we look at the second part of this passage. Verse 35 shows us why the pastor has been describing their past faithfulness. Therefore, he writes, do not now throw away your confession, your confidence, excuse me, which has a great reward. You endured those trials because you knew you had an eternal possession. Now, let me remind you, the pastor is saying here in verse 35, that the maintenance of such confidence is the key to receiving that great reward. 
pastor uses here the same word for confidence that he did only a few verses back in chapter 10, verse 19. There the pastor said, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. It's that precious confidence that we must never throw away or throw off or discard as if it were worthless. To do that would be to do precisely what the pastor has just warned us against. And so verses 36 to 39 describe the opposite of that. Here's what it looks like not to throw away our confidence. Ready? Let's read these verses before we make a few comments. For you have need of endurance, verse 36, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And I know time is short here now, but that's okay, because much of the exegetical detail that comes in these verses is, quite frankly, more than we could probably manage in a sermon setting of whatever length, if we had the time. But even though the exegesis is somewhat complex, the basic point the pastor is making in this part of the passage isn't, you have need of endurance. Every warning and every promise of Hebrews has been crafted to encourage this. For as the pastor sees, endurance is what is necessary if the promise is to be obtained. Now we all know by now what the promise is. <laughs> it's salvation, it's life with God and it's in a place. It's the great reward the pastor mentions in verse 35. It's the better possession that we talked about from verse 34. The need is for endurance. And what is that? Well, we need look no further than verse 36 itself. The pastor tells us, it is doing the will of God throughout our lives, dear friends. That is, it is to continue living as the hearers of Hebrews had done in the former days, described in verses 32 to 34, because it is only when we have done the will of God that we will receive what is promised. That means we're talking here about the end. When verse 37 says, when you have done the will of God, it's referring to the completion of the life of faith. As one commentator puts it, to do his will is merely to continue in the obedience that comes from living in reliance on Christ and the salvation that he has provided. I like that a lot, so I'll say that quote again. To do his will, the will of God, is 
merely to continue in the obedience that comes from living in reliance on Christ and the salvation that he has provided. Or, to use the language of verse 38 in our passage, the language that will now be the focus of the entirety of chapter 11, we can say it this way, to do the will of God is to live by faith. When verse 37 says, when you have done the will of God, it is referring to the completion of the life of faith. That's what we want, dear friends, more than anything else. That's what the pastor wants for his hearers more than anything else, because it's what they and we need to live by faith. Now, we will have lots to say about what faith is from chapters 11 and 12 in the weeks to come, as you can well imagine. For now, I'll put it just like this. Faith is a way of life, dear friends. Faith in Hebrews is not a past event that effects some kind of permanent contract or something with God that irrevocably secures eternal benefits. That's not the way faith works. The pastor does not have his hearers remember the past because he thinks that's all they need in order to receive the promise. Just that example of faith in their past, that's all they need. No, that's good. That's even cause for their encouragement but only if they now carry on, only if they now endure, only if they now continue to do the will of God in their lives. You see, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's what Hebrews 10 verse 36 is saying too. And the idea isn't that living that way somehow merits the promise. No, it's a matter of living in covenant with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it means it's a matter of walking by the Spirit, if I may now reach back into the language of Galatians for a moment. To live by faith is to endure in covenantally righteous living. You don't earn your way into the covenant. We've seen over and over how it is that we come to be part of the new covenant, haven't we? It's there in Hebrews 8, quoting from Jeremiah 31, the Lord has to change our hearts. He has to write his law there by his spirit. We've said all of that. Galatians was all about that. Yes, God rewards, but what he rewards isn't achievement, but faith. I like how one author puts it when he says that faith is the total acceptance of what is given, the total investment in what is promised, the total reliance on the one who promises, the total hope for and desire for that inheritance in the understanding that here and now we have no abiding city. 
The life of faith is a life of endurance through reliance on God. It is trustful believing, trustful believing in God and his promise, not merely as a mental act, but as a way of life. I'm getting way ahead of myself. <laughs> There's a whole chapter coming on that subject. For now, at the end of our time this morning, let's simply go to verses 37 and 38, where we see the pastor here reference a key Old Testament text that is the basis for what he's just said in verse 36. Hang in there just for a few more minutes in this sermon if you can. Why? Is endurance in doing God's will necessary if the promise is to be obtained? How do we know that? Well, the answer according to verses 37 and 38 is because God said so in Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Habakkuk chapter 2. Verse 37 of Hebrews 10 begins with the word for telling you that the whole quote here in verses 37 and 38 is the pastor now giving the scriptural basis for what he just said. And apart from the very first phrase in verse 37, the phrase, yet a little while, which seems to be an allusion to a different text, to Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20, apart from that, the rest of verse 37 and all of verse 38 is the pastor quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Only. If you go back and read Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 in your Old Testament, which we won't do now, but you can do later, if you were to do that, what you'd realize right away is that what the pastor quotes here in Hebrews 10 isn't what's there in Habakkuk 2. Or at least, it's not what's there in the Hebrew text of Habakkuk that is the basis of the English Old Testament that you have in your Bible. Some of the things are similar, but a bunch of it just isn't. And we're not going to try anything like a full explanation of what's going on there. The shortest way to say it is that the pastor adapts this passage from Habakkuk for his use in Hebrews. That's not me saying that he misconstrues it. But the pastor quotes, not from the Hebrew, but from the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament that had rearranged and made into a messianic tone their own translation of the Hebrew text of Habakkuk. The pastor takes that Greek text, further rearranges it, and then adds a few other pieces to it just to make clear what he wants to say. Now, for our purposes, all I want to ask is, what is it that the pastor means for Habakkuk chapter 2 here to be saying as he presents it at this point of Hebrews? There are three things which I'm just going to list, and you can follow along in the text. Number one, in verse 37, Jesus Christ is returning soon. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. The coming one is a clear messianic title. John the Baptist used a form of that in Matthew 11 when he asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? 
The title has its origins in texts such as Psalm 118, verse 26, which was understood to be referring to the Messiah. You know that verse from Palm Sunday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Only here in Hebrews, the reference now isn't to the Messiah's first coming, but to his second, when he comes to judge the earth. We heard a resonance of that strongly from our psalm earlier this morning. That is the coming that will be the full realization of Habakkuk's vision, if you know the context of that book. The coming one, Jesus here, will come and will not delay. Number two then, in verse 38a, on that day when the coming one comes, who is it that will be saved? Well, the saved will be those who persevere in faith. Verse 38a says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Meaning, I think primarily that the one who is righteous the one who is righteous is the one who lives by faith now. The whole focus of chapter 11. To be righteous is to live with such trust in God's promise and power. But the pastor would also say that such a person will inherit eternal life through such faith. So the righteous will also be those who live forever. And that's what the verse includes. They obtain eternal life by such perseverance and dependence upon God. Both things are likely meant in verse 38a. My righteous one shall live by faith. Thirdly then, in contrast, verse 38b says the lost, those who are not saved, are those who shrink back. And if he shrinks back, my soul, meaning the Lord himself, because it's the Lord speaking here, my soul has no pleasure in him, meaning the Lord will reject such a person. This is to repeat the warning from last week. The word that here is translated as shrinking back was a word that commonly denoted apostasy. Such a person will be rejected by the Lord himself, as we saw last week. What awaits the apostate isn't eternal life, but eternal death. They will be destroyed, as verse 39 makes clear. Now that's the short summary. Here's the even shorter summary. Faith is everything. Faith is everything. That's the point. Just as it is when Paul quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4 as well in Romans 1 verse 17, when he explains that salvation is totally by faith. For in it, the gospel, Paul writes, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Dear friends, Following on his fiery warning in verses 25 to 31, the pastor has now offered his hearers and us some much needed encouragement to do two things. Remember the past and respond in the present. Respond 
with confidence and persevering faith. We need to do these things. We need to remember how God has helped us in the past by reflecting on the strength that is ours when we trust in him. And then having remembered that, we need to respond with enduring faith in the present. We need to persevere, always focused on the future, on the promise that will be ours when the coming one will come. Knowing it was the Lord himself who declared, my righteous one shall live by faith. There can be no question in the end what the pastor thought of the recipients of Hebrews, can there? Verse 39, the last verse of chapter 10, makes it clear. The pastor is ready to identify his hearers with the faithful, the faithful of the past, those to whom he will now turn his entire attention in chapter 11. I've been looking forward to Hebrews 11 since the beginning of this long series. But for this morning, let the pastor's encouragement for them in verse 39 be also for you, dear friends. That, I believe, is the Holy Spirit's intention for these inspired words. And so I say them to you now as your pastor. Dear brothers and sisters, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.